Thank you very much. It's good to be back again. And uh, having grown up in Northumberland, I just don't mind the East Coast weather. It comes naturally to me. That's fine. Theology needs history. At least Christian theology needs history, but it hasn't always known what to do with it. Anyone who prays for God's kingdom to come on earth as in heaven is committed to space, time, and matter existence, not to illustrate abstract principles, but as the reality to which abstract principles bear humble witness. Jesus, in other words, is not an illustration, even the ultimate illustration of true doctrine. Principles and doctrines refer to him and must defer to him, and this means history. Doing theology, including natural theology, without history is like playing the violin without a bow. Pizzicato theology, if you like. History, I'm arguing in these lectures, is a necessary but normally missing ingredient in natural theology. Jesus lived in the natural world of first century Galilee. Rimarus and others insisted that we should look for him there. That might have been an own goal, supposing we did, and there he was. The fact that our main historical sources, the Gospels, are part of Christian scripture ought neither to be invoked as special help, we have an inside track, nor to be dismissed as special pleading. Oh, that's special revelation, so it doesn't count. But the texts are still there, still claiming to talk about real events. Now, history is not neutral. It is shifting sand. The notion of history and the discipline that bears that name have been part of the cultural, sociological, and political struggles I've been talking about in the previous two lectures. Earlier times, back in the medieval times, for instance, understood an easy connection between past and present, but from the Renaissance onwards, the idea of a temporal break became more apparent, and this is the equivalent in the understanding of time of the Epicurean break between our world and the divine. The past is now remote and opaque. Revolutions were shaping the present and the future. A new professional historiography was therefore required, training people to grasp what before had been assumed to be familiar. And as the rationalists separated past from present, the romantics looked back sadly, trying to glimpse a lost world. Schoenewelt, wo bist du? asks Schiller. Schubert, when setting that stanza, moves poignantly between minor and major. Only in the magic land of song, says the poem, does the sweet springtime of nature live on. Keine Gottheit zeigt sich meinem Blick. Lessing's ditch now separates not just contingent and eternal, but past and present. No divinity is visible, only a shadow remains. So, does history now mean rationalistic investigation, romantic imagination, or both, or neither, or a mixture, or what? Other voices soon proposed new ways of linking past and present. Perhaps there were overarching themes, patterns, inner movements, a sense of onward journey, which might be scientifically retrieved, a sense perhaps of a goal, a telos. History was all along going somewhere, and perhaps it was almost there. Perhaps one might grasp it by revisiting the myths from that old Greek world and allowing them to speak to the human condition again. 19th century Germans loved those myths. They saw in them a genuine reconnection with the past and hence with deeper meaning. That's where David Friedrich Strauss, who I mentioned before, comes in. Casting the Jesus story as myth was for him saying that this was how you could connect with the past. Whereas Anglo-Saxons, deaf to the cultural point, only heard him saying, so most of that stuff didn't happen. These proposals were closely connected with the political movements of the time in a Europe full of new possibilities and dangers. History, inverted commas, might just teach us who we are and even where we're going. Thus, the modern discipline of history 
was born out of the same cultural crisis that I've already described. It doesn't, in other words, provide us with a nice, firm, neutral starting point. No, the discipline which itself investigates the contingent has itself developed contingently. The sands were shifting then, and they're shifting still. And part of my purpose in these lectures is to stress that from a theological point of view, this is as it should be. History, I shall suggest, is the risky public discourse which matches and celebrates the divine risk, the divine humility of incarnation itself. Without that, we copy Peter at Caesarea Philippi, assuming we know what messiahship ought to mean. Or we copy Peter in Gethsemane, defending Jesus one minute and denying him the next. These Petrine failures draw forth the haunting question of John 21. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And to this, I shall return. So what then do we mean by this slippery word, history? A boxing commentator declares that the man on the floor is history. Politicians say they are on the right side of history. We say history is full of surprises, or we might say, history will be kind to you. The word has quite a different meaning in each of those uses, and we could think of lots more. Now, at the popular level, we understand. But in theology, the shifting sand has caused problems. Let's start with the four common meanings of the word and see how they interrelate. First, history as events. Second, history as narrative about events. Third, history as task. And fourth, history as meaningful events or meaningful narrative. Let me explain. Under one, we sometimes refer to the past, talking about sometime back in history, sometimes to the future, when we say, whatever will happen in history, or indeed both, when we talk grandly about the whole sweep of history, everything, all events, past or future. And when theologians discuss history, this totality is normally what they're talking about. More specifically, history in this sense, sense one, can refer simply to things we know happened, not just all events ever, but things we know happened, or a smaller set again to things we can demonstrate. We normally use the adjective historical to mark off real such events from fictitious ones. Sense 2 is obvious, Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War is a book about events, not the event itself. Though the point is, as he says, to give interpretative access to those events. That's how he opens his book, saying that's what he's intending to do. And sense two distinguishes historical narrative from the mere listing of unrelated happenings, which we call chronicles or annals. If it's history, sense two, it means, no, we're producing a connected narrative, continuity, some sense of causes and consequences, of a sequence with developments, disruptions, recapitulations, results. And those usually involve human motivations. They are part of history too. Not least when humans aim to do one thing and something else happens, as is frequent. The meaning of sense three is clear as well. When we say, I'm doing history, we mean broadly, I'm researching events and writing about them. Theologians normally don't refer to this meeting, meaning, except when discussing historical criticism as a problem for theology. I will spell out what the task doing history involves presently. But sense four is where the fun starts, because sense four finds meaning, whether in the events themselves, sense one, or in the narrative about events, sense two. When someone says history is going somewhere, or that we must be on the right side of history, they are presuming to know that events as a whole, especially the ones they're interested in, are necessarily or automatically going in a particular direction. That is sense four one. Some people have called this historicism. That term is contested, and I'll come back to it. Sense 4.2 is visible, that's the narrative, when somebody says, history will be kind to you, or as in Churchill's famous bon mot, 
history will be kind to me because I intend to write it. Here, history is narrative about events, evaluating them, and or pointing to some meta-historical meaning. The two senses of four, event and narrative, can be combined. If, for instance, someone says, if only we learned the lessons of history, that could be events, it could be narrative, it could be both. So, sense four involves meaning. That's another word, as slippery as a country road on a frosty night. And to gain traction, I take meaning in a broadly Wittgensteinian sense, that the meaning of a word is its use in the context. So the meaning of a historical event is the role that it plays within some larger narrative. This might vary. Example, someone in a bar in Sarajevo on June the 28th, 1914, might have said that the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand meant that you could never trust those coach drivers. The fellow took the wrong turning, and there were the assassins. Gavrilo Princip, the assassin himself, might have seen it as a stroke of amazing luck. He botched the first attempt and then was presented with a second chance. So it means that luck does sometimes come your way. Supposing Vienna newspapers the next day, they might have seen it as meaning that the Serbs now needed teaching a lesson. The Chicago Daily Tribune got it wrong. Now he's gone, said the paper, there's a better chance of peace. Generals and crowned heads around Europe, fatefully, saw it as the call to arms for which they had been preparing. They had seen that history was going this way and they were eager to help it along. In hindsight, we see it as the start of four years of crazy butchery and 50 years of inhumane wickedness. And we recognize that Ferdinand was, in fact, the one man who might have prevented it all. The meaning of an event is the role it plays within a larger narrative. Now, those examples work differently. The man in Sarajevo, the journalists, would simply be adding new twists to old stories. Our long hindsight, as the consequences continue to unfold, generates a head-shaking penitence for 19th century optimism. But for the kings, and especially the generals, there was already a solid narrative in place. Plans were drawn up. Troops were prepared. They knew which way history was going. They'd been saying it for some time, and now people just had to get on board. So how does sense three, the task of history, work? How does it compare with science? Interesting question, much bigger than we can look at tonight, but I'm going to hint at it all the way through, really. And how do we go about it? The task of history has normally three phases. This is almost common sense, and most textbooks say it. You investigate source materials, you form hypotheses about how it makes sense, and you test those hypotheses, and you work towards a narrative through which readers will know and understand the events. This normally involves some sort of gestures towards meaning, though there the ways diverge. So let's take it step by step. First, history proceeds by hypothesis and verification. What matters is the constant interplay of carefully studied data with the interpretative human imagination. You're developing big picture and the study of the data are in ongoing dialogue. The difference with science is that history, unlike, say, chemistry, includes human motivation. I'll come back to that. Now, this process is often misunderstood. There's a technical term for it, namely abduction, as expounded by the philosopher C.S. Pierce. Scholars sometimes speak, not least in my field of biblical studies, as though history simply meant accumulating data with no hypotheses involved. And any attempt at a larger narrative showing how it all fits together is then dismissed. Oh, we are told, I'm often told, you have that story in your head and you're imposing it on the data. And since some people do have narratives in their heads ahead of time and do impose them, we need to distinguish. Think of the alternative. Starting from below, induction, is never enough. You need to sift and sort, select and arrange, and that needs some 
framing principle or question. And you get that from informed and disciplined imaginative leaps to hypotheses, which are then ruthlessly tested back against the evidence. That's abduction. Likewise, starting from above, deduction is never enough. Big theories, what must have happened, need relentless testing and modifying or abandoning altogether in the light of the evidence. Without that, you might be right, but it might be fantasy. You only get real knowledge through abduction. So that's the first thing. Second thing, history investigates human aims and motivations. To attend to the aims and motives of people other than ourselves, I and others have developed different models of worldviews, what Charles Taylor calls the social imaginary and the like. This is not trying to squash events into a preformed pattern. It is due diligence respecting actual circumstances and mindsets. For instance, people used to think that Jesus got into trouble over apparent Sabbath-breaking and over his temple demonstration because the Jews were legalists or ritualists while he believed in free grace. Wrong. Sabbath and temple were central symbols with known meanings. We don't think like that, but they did. Jesus' radical kingdom announcement resonated in his world in a way that has often been opaque to ours. The worldview model is a way of discipline, disciplining the sympathetic imagination, alerting us to the danger of merely projecting our own ideas, even our own ideas of radical newness, back onto a fictitious screen. Thinking into the minds of people who think differently from ourselves is one aspect of the hermeneutic of love. Not trying to drag people into our world, but relishing the fact that they live in theirs. Now this task is vital but fraught. Vico's insistence three centuries ago on studying other minds is different from Voltaire's anthropocentric reductionism, though even Pannenberg can write as if they were doing the same thing. We must not ignore the God-given human role and the human vocation of and aims of Jesus himself. Investigating human motivation remains central to the historical task and does not have any necessary connection with reductionism. So that's the second point, investigating aims and motives. Third, history works towards a narrative display of results. The historian's narrative, as I've said, is more than chronicle. History proposes, as a further hypothesis, causes and connections and consequences, which, of course, involves selection and arrangement. Selection, you can only say everything when there is almost nothing to say. Arrangement, you can't just list what happened. You must display the narratival ligaments, highlighting events, showcasing motivations. Fourth, history thus produces real knowledge. As with hard science, this is always provisional, but that doesn't mean it isn't knowledge. Only mathematics escapes provisionality. The historian, like the scientist, uses educated and disciplined guesswork to form hypotheses, but the hypotheses don't stay as guesses. They get put to the proof. And again, as with science, there's a range of possible results, from virtual certainty to continuing indeterminacy. We know that the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70, just as securely as we know that water equals hydrogen plus oxygen. The logical positivists tried to suggest that scientific knowledge was absolute, while metaphysics, certainly theology, and possibly even history, was either nonsense or just fuzzy. Wrong on both counts. But if, and here is our payoff, if history is real knowledge about the real world, it must take its place near the heart of any theological investigation which seeks to bring that real world, not least its human inhabitants, into engagement with the question of God. 
So, to sum up this section, history proceeds by abduction, hypothesis and verification. It includes the study of human aims and motivations, mapped by worldview analysis or something similar. There's nothing sacrosanct about my worldview analysis. Lots of other people have done comparable things. It results in a narrative displaying causes and consequences, and this produces real knowledge. You see, sometimes when um, scholars talk about scientific historiography, they mean starting with Cartesian skepticism or Humean reductionism, or indeed ending with a scientific projection into the future. I have argued that all of that is quite wrong. Once we allow for the difference in subject matter, history is fully scientific in its method without collapsing into that odd thing called naturalism. But this leads us to the next main point. Doing history is not the same as historicism. Sooner or later in these conversations, the word historicism comes up. I've been puzzled about this word for a long time, and I finally went and bashed it on the head. Unlike the different uses of history, the different senses of historicism are frequently unclear, not least when used polemically, as they often are. The common factor listing the, li the common factor linking the senses of historicism is the belief in the interconnectedness of ideas and events and cultures. Events and ideas belong in a wider network of social, cultural, political, artistic, religious life, practice, belief, imagination, and so on. In a sense, that's what I've been doing these three lectures, doing that kind of study. What happens, though, when we take account of that? Here, some have urged that a complete sociological description would enable prediction, as when an astronomer predicts the next eclipse. This was the sense of historicism which Karl Popper attacked in The Poverty of Historicism, 1957. Popper saw idealist historicism as the root of the 20th century totalitarian horrors, blaming Hegel and Marx in particular. Pantheism and materialism had claimed to know hidden laws, not just about what had happened, but about what would happen. This is the way history is going, whether you like it or not, and we've got to make it happen. This is how things must work out, and that must is the telltale sound, the soft footfall of the historicist burglar in the House of Human Wisdom. Popper pressed the panic button at that point, and that goes exactly with Kazeman's reaction to salvation history. The scars were fresh. Don't go there again. And today, however, many who've never heard of Hegel or Marx, still less Popper or Kazeman, still believe that history is going in a particular direction or that history teaches us this or that. They are historicists in this first sense. C.S. Lewis, interestingly, in an article first published in 1950, attacked what he called historicism in that same sense. A much narrower sense of historicism is associated with Trölsch. Trölsch shared the German belief in progress, seeing liberal Protestantism itself as its goal. But when people speak of Trölsch's historicism, they normally refer to his criteria for historical research, which effectively place events belonging within a closed continuum of cause and effect. And many theologians refer disparagingly to historicism in this sense because it eliminates ab initio, the prospect of divine action in the world. Those two meanings may be the best known, but if historicism means understanding events and ideas in their wider social and cultural setting, that can go in a totally different direction. It often generates a form of relativism. Oh, people thought like that then, and we can see why, but we don't think like that now, and here's that. This is the sense in, uh, used by Steve Mason, who taught here until quite recently, in his recent book on historical theory in relation to Roman Judea, a very interesting and good book in all sorts of ways. Because for Mason, it was the positivists who embraced the large-scale vision of progress. And those Mason calls the historicists, quote, 
embraced the mess and were suspicious of large-scale explanations, devoting their energy to figuring out who did what to whom, when and why, specifically, end of quote. No wonder we get confused. For Popper and Lewis, and many at a popular level, historicists are the ones with big theories who impose them on the future as well as the past. For those Mason is tracking, historicists are the ones who refuse to do that, but insist on locating words and documents and people and events in their own specific culture and time. This remarkable division of meaning reflects the 19th century standoff between the Hegelian school and Leopold von Ranke, probably the most famous 19th century German historian. Von Ranke, of course, has often been thought a naive realist for his famous statement that he was trying to describe the past wie es eigentlich gewesen. There it is at the bottom of that famous quote. But von Ranke's point, reflecting his lifelong opposition some have written of his lifelong pathological hatred for Hegel and his big predictive schemes. Von Ranke's point was that he was concentrating not on those big teleological theories, but on actual events. Von Ranke, too, was a historicist in the sense that he had his own meta-historical evaluation of what historical events meant. Every age, he believed, was equally accessible to God. He was a devout Lutheran. And von Ranke's disciple Meinecke labelled this view not as historicismus, but as historismus. Historism rather than historicism. That hasn't caught on, despite some trying to get it done in English as well. In any case, the key point got lost in translation. Some English speakers misreading von Ranke's famous statement, wie es eigentlich gewesen, as a naive positivism, in the usual sense, but knowing that von Ranke was called a historicist, then used the word historicist to mean naive realism, trying just to get at the facts. At that point, chaos has come again. The word has become useless. The safe ground, if we must use the word, is to stick with the Hegelians on one side and von Ranke on the other. Isaiah Berlin, tracing historicism all the way back to Giambattista Vico in the 17th century, speaks of it, quote, as a doctrine that in its empirical form has stimulated and enriched, and in its dogmatic metaphysical form has inhibited or distorted the historical imagination. So, yes, we do need to locate ideas and events in their own contexts, described as richly as we can, but no, we should not try to use social scientific observation of the past to produce the meaning of the present, still less the direction of the future. The first of these can indeed be used to support relativism, but it need not be. As Collingwood insisted, we all see things from our own point of view, but that doesn't make history arbitrary or capacious. capricious. Historical knowledge remains genuine knowledge. Now, I've given a very, very dense, compressed summary here of much more complex issues. But all this means that we should be careful in using historicism as a technical term. However, the view that Popper and Lewis at least were attacking remains alive and well, and we need to address it. I'll call it, for these purposes, predictive historicism. The view that we know where history is going, and we just say there it is, and we need to get on board and help it on its way. Predictive historicism has no need to bother with history in senses too or three, or indeed with the more restricted meanings of sense one. It makes arm-waving statements about history, meaning everything that has ever happened and will ever happen, and it leaps straight down to statements about meaning in sense four, the inevitable progress of events. This requires no investigation, no study of sources. The obvious answer to it is that actually we know hardly any of the past and none whatever of the future. Tricky basis for any theory. However, 19th century Hegelians ignored this and, with ritual the theologian, sailed the boat right into the harbour. Here comes the kingdom of God, except that what we got instead was the 20th century.
Now, politicians have often been predictive historicists. When the 17th century radicals called themselves fifth monarchy men, they were predictive historicists. The prophet Daniel had seen four monstrous regimes overthrown by a new ruler who establishes God's kingdom. This gave them the clue. That's where history is going, and we're on the crest of the wave. Jump forward. When Hillary Clinton backed the Arab Spring in 2011, she said it was important to be on the right side of history. She too claimed to know where history was going. Of course, history doesn't usually cooperate, but people often assume it will, if only we can sort out the logistics and persuade strange people in foreign lands to see things our way. This is the opposite of a hermeneutic of love. Of course, the political claim to stand at the leading edge of history is hardly new. The earliest examples I know are Augustus's court poets and historians who depict the inexorable rise of Rome as the meaning of history. A century later, nobody thought like that. The cynicism of Tacitus and Suetonius functions like the mold on an overripe historicist cheese. So to theology. Do Christians have an inside track on the telos, the goal of history? From one point of view, yes. Romans 8, creation will be rescued from its slavery to decay. 1 Corinthians 15, death will be defeated and God will be all in all. Revelation 21, new heavens and new earth. This ultimate future, though, we're told, is going to come as a surprise. There would be telltale signs that Jerusalem was about to fall, but the final end would come like a thief in the night. The early Christians did not suppose that either their ultimate future or their immediate past, the events concerning Jesus, would then enable them to read off what God was doing from day to day. Nor importantly, did they imagine that the ultimate future would emerge from within the ongoing processes of the world. It would be new creation. When some early Christians did propose a larger picture of historical meaning, they were to that extent acting out of character. Augustine's City of God, a noble book, was answering pagan writers who, like Gibbon, accused Christianity of undermining Rome by stopping pagan worship. Writing like Augustine's there was actually drawing neither on Jewish nor on New Testament theology. Jewish salvation history doesn't work like that. And the early Christians believed that Jesus was himself the one and only fifth monarchy man, and so they looked for no others. This is the grain of truth in Bultmann's claim that history came to a stop. In the modern period, Teilhard de Chardin was a predictive historicist of a kind. And other historical writers, not unlike von Ranke, have clung to a belief in providence despite everything. Butterfield, in his uh, famous and poignant book, Christianity and History. Somehow after the war, we still got to believe God is somehow in charge. Butterfield isn't trying to claim that you can see step by step what's going on or how it's working. Arguments like Augustine's are sometimes made by theologians who are anxious lest in doing history, senses three and two, one should capitulate to methodological naturalism. Instead, they ask us to hold together, like Hegel, but with a different theology, a maximal version of one, history in its totality, and a revealed version of four, one, the sovereignty of Jesus Christ over all history. And we are then to proclaim, some have told us, the meaning of history from this point of view and in no other way. Here, too, actual historical research is not needed. Actually, it's forbidden. Because to go about assembling data and forming hypotheses and writing connected narratives to display your results would be a sign of unfaithfulness, a sign that you didn't really trust that Jesus was the Lord of history. The same negativity towards history sometimes appears within the turn to narrative. Narrative is important, but one sometimes gets the impression that so long as we live within the narrative, we don't need that messy actual history. An extreme version of this sometimes invokes apocalyptic. I'll be coming back to apocalyptic on Wednesday. 
actual first century apocalyptic writing engaged with real socio-political issues. But some today, citing Kierkegaard and the early Barth, only want revelation vertically from above, thinking thus to safeguard the freedom of God. And any attempt to do history or to employ a worldview model to understand first century motivations is then dismissed as naturalism. The point of contact must be minimal. Pizzicato theology, again. Or changing the image. This is a classic case of a man with a hammer seeing every problem as a nail. That's not the person you'll be hiring to fix your grandfather clock. Real history shows that ancestral time and its renewal are not well understood either by Hegel or his mirror opposites. These modern attempts at Christian predictive historicism, though it doesn't call itself that, demonstrated, demonstrate what I earlier called the Petrine temptation to protect Jesus against his own vocation. Real history, including the investigation of Jesus and his first followers, has the character of the Pauline kenosis. Jesus did not wear a halo. His redefinition of power in word and in deed, in action and passion, was the opposite of what his friends expected. And we should learn. We ought not to speak of God incarnate until we have studied the incarnate God. The discipline of actual history, history in senses two and three, matches that strange redefinition of power in terms of weakness by the seeming weakness of an investigative method of putting large-scale conclusions about meaning on hold and allowing the evidence to make its impact on the inquiring mind. The shifting sand is where we are called to stand. So what happens after all this to Jesus and historical criticism? Theologians still sometimes dismiss this question with scorn. But if we're talking about the interface of God and the world, we cannot tiptoe around the topic. As we've seen, much historical investigation of the New Testament emerged from the Enlightenment's attempt to cut Christianity down to size, not to find what actually happened, but to discover what ought to have happened if the Enlightenment's own cultural ideals were really true, hence the Cartesian pressure to epistemological caution, if not downright skepticism, was reinforced by the socio-cultural pressure towards forms of Epicureanism or radical Protestantism. A relentlessly inductive epistemology made common cause with the determinately deductive master narrative. Hence the ambiguity of the phrase, the historical critical method. Many take this to mean a combination of source criticism with Trulchian skepticism designed to produce the results of a slimmed down Protestantism. However, many Anglo-Saxons, innocent of German philosophy, use the phrase historical critical in a sort of neutral sense. J.B. Lightfoot, according to C.K. Barrett, used, quote, the historical critical method throughout his commentaries, meaning that, quote, the primary and inescapable task of exegesis is to determine the precise meaning of the words in question in the context in which they were first spoken or written. And if after that you said that you weren't using the historical critical method, you would be confessing to arbitrary eisegesis. So when English speakers then heard German historical critical scholars producing assured results, they heard this in a positivistic sense. But philosophers and theologians, hearing biblical colleagues talk of historical criticism, smell German reductionism and declare the project bankrupt. Historical criticism can go either way. Just because you don't like the music on the radio, you shouldn't throw the radio in the bin. Try to tuning to a more congenial station. Historians and exegetes are used to the theologians' suspicion we tend just to carry on. But the phrase historical Jesus remains ambiguous. The English word historical naturally points us towards sense one, the first century man from Galilee. But it can also slide into sense two, Jesus as historians reconstruct him, not least because that's what the German phrase der historische Jesus would suggest. And theologians then sometimes suggest that one collapses into two. You may think 
you're talking about Jesus himself, but really you're producing a modern reconstruction, an ideological projection, an agenda-driven version of four masquerading as a quasi-positivist objectivity, two and one. They then react, oh, don't give us a historical Jesus. That'll just be your own would-be fifth gospel, finding a Jesus behind the text rather than relying on the gospels we've got. But there's a big difference between adopting an enlightenment a priori and saying, now we know things can't have happened like that, let's get rid of the Gospels, believe this instead. Big difference between that and saying, as I would, the more we study the first century, the more it seems that the church we know has not entirely heard what the four Gospels themselves were trying to tell us. This last is eminently reasonable. Despite those who protest that since the fathers and reformers, and indeed Thomas Aquinas, read their Bibles and said their prayers, the Spirit must have been guiding them into all truth. So we don't need to do that silly historical stuff. No, Jesus and his first followers were Second Temple Jews. That world was increasingly opaque to Christians and to Jews too after 135 AD. But we now have excellent sources to penetrate that darkness. This does not require the back projection of a theological construct from subsequent Christian thought any more than it implies a human skepticism. It requires history through the task, three, producing narratives, two, which, like scientific knowledge, mutatis mutandis, will increasingly approximate to the events and motivations themselves, one, resulting in fresh proposals in sense four, proposals not smuggled in a priori, but emerging through the actual task of research and narration. We should therefore ignore the sneer about going behind the text. That sometimes suggests something sneaky, pulling a stunt while the writers aren't looking. And the accusation gains traction from the postmodern literary mood of questioning any real world outside the text. But this is ridiculous. When texts appear prima facie to describe actual events, it isn't going behind them to ask about those events. When the newspaper reports that the local team won the match, the obvious bias of the reporter doesn't mean that the goals were only scored in a private intratextual universe. The task of History 3 needs to challenge received interpretations, not to substitute a new construct for the texts we possess, but to understand better what those texts were saying all along. So what can history do for us? Three things, I suggest. First, history is good at defeating the defeaters. I think some analytic philosophers and theologians talk like this. It's a language I'm trying to learn. People sometimes suggest that Jesus was an Egyptian Freemason or a Qumran visionary or that he was married to Mary Magdalene or something, always with the implication so Christianity is based on a mistake. Or we should go back to atheism or 18th century deism. Weird proposals come and go. Don't judge a discipline by its distortions. The skeptics are dealt with not by dogmatic reassertion nor by the dismissal of history three with the slur of methodological naturalism, but by history itself. Don't be scared. Dan Brown is a nuisance, but Martin Hengel and others are there to help. Another example, many have said that Jesus and his first followers couldn't have thought of him as divine, A, because they were Jewish monotheists, and B, because that would make him insane. But contemporary studies of monotheism and of the way that temple theology worked show that these objections are based on ignorance. And this has been argued not by an orthodox a priori, but by historical research, sense three, into historical evidence, sense one, challenging unwarranted hypotheses with better ones, sense two, suggesting the possibility of different meanings, sense four. The resurrection raises other questions to which we'll come back in nine days' time. But defeating the defeaters doesn't mean, well, we've got rid of the nonsense, let's go back to believing what we always believed, because history can also dismantle the distortions, challenging ordinary Christian misconceptions. An obvious example is the kingdom of God. We know roughly what that meant to Jesus' contemporaries and which scriptural texts it would have evoked. 
We know too that Jesus was not simply describing the kingdom, he was constantly redefining what it meant, doing so around himself and his own strange vocation. And we know this again as a matter of history, though you'd never get it from the theological a priori, which sweeps past trailing clouds of patristic references on its way to and fro between a wide-angle sense one and an assumed historicist sense four. This dismantling of distortions will be resisted. Theology has regularly said, you historians are wolves in sheep's clothing and we're not going to listen to you. Your history is smuggling in 18th century reductionism, but we have no choice. The word became flesh. History will show not that Christianity is based on a mistake, but that some of the ways in which we have perceived and re-expressed it have introduced mistakes by not paying attention to setting and meaning. But if history can defeat the defeaters and dismantle the distortions, this is the only bit of alliteration you're getting all week, so enjoy it while it's there. It must also direct the discussion. We dare not start anywhere else. Chalcedon? Well, Chalcedon tried to retrieve original meanings in 5th century idiom, but it left something to be desired as even the great Orthodox Henry Chadwick has admitted. If theology is true to itself, it can't simply snatch a few biblical texts to decorate an argument constructed elsewhere. It must grow out of historical exegesis of the text itself. I understand the resistance. Many theologians, perhaps some of you, experienced undergraduate biblical studies as the lifeless rehearsing of Greek roots and reconstructed sources. That, too, was a way of avoiding history, of pretending that digging the soil was the same thing as growing vegetables. When done properly, historical exegesis, three and two, ought to be producing the plants themselves, one, and letting them bear their own fruit, four. But it will only do this if it's allowed to be itself, if history can get on with its work without people looking over its shoulder and warning it about the shifting sands or telling it it's much safer to play the violin without the bow. Back to the Petrine temptations again. So I plead to the theologians, don't reject history. You have nothing to lose but your Platonism. Of course, people have often said history, history, when there was no history, using Hume and Trulch to undermine Christianity, not least by de-Judaizing it. Theologians themselves have often used Lessing's ugly ditch as a moat to defend their own citadel, not simply against the critique which says Christianity was based on a mistake, but against the more important critique, which suggests that some of Christianity's great traditions have slipped their moorings and floated off into the blue sky of speculation. To study the history of the first century is in fact a necessary part of healthy Christian theology. Necessary but insufficient, we cannot by history re-found an old-fashioned rationalist apologetic. It needs to be complemented by other dimensions. We'll come back to that later this month. So Rimarus was right to confront the Western church with history, but he was wrong to suppose that this would falsify Christianity. Rather, it should direct the discussion into better paths reminding the church of Jesus' core kingdom message. The divinity of Jesus is the key in which the gospel music is set, but it isn't the tune that's being played. Jesus' kingdom announcement itself commits us to the task of history three, to produce coherent narratives about the past through which you might gain better insight into what actually happened and what it meant at the time. And history will then take its proper place as part of the natural world available for theological reflection. So to conclude, good history requires four virtues. Humility, to understand the thoughts of people who thought differently from ourselves. Patience, to go on working with the data and resist premature conclusions. Penitence, to acknowledge that our traditions may have introduced attractive distortions and that we, like Peter, have tried to save Jesus from his vocation, and love to appreciate with delight events outside ourselves and thoughts different from our own. Without the shifting sands, we flatter ourselves that we stand on solid ground. These virtues help us to stand on the shifting sands wisely. We shall not attempt 
as some Christian predictive historicists hope, a new kind of contemporary salvation history, looking at events in our world and reading off divine intention and action. Even St. Paul, musing on the meaning of Onesimus' conversion, introduced his interpretation with perhaps. So historical study of the early Jewish and Christian world sets itself the hermeneutical, itself sets the hermeneutic parameters for the task. The Epicurean split between our world and the divine, which I talked about earlier, needs challenging. People then, back then, did not suppose the cosmos to be divided into nature and supernature, nor did they see past and present and future either as separated by a great gulf or as determined by inner forces. Their understandings of reality, as we'll see in the fifth lecture, were temple-shaped and Sabbath-shaped. In the world they knew, Heaven and earth, God's present and God's future, overlapped and interlocked. The task of history is therefore not unlike the task of Elijah, rebuilding the altar of Yahweh, which had fallen into disrepair. The priests of Baal, the self-appointed leaders of secular Western culture, have danced around, cutting themselves with their own theories, dreaming dreams of progress or revolution, and still the kingdom has not come. Many of the faithful Yahweh scribes have retreated into caves, safe in their private textual worlds. The historians must take up the stones that speak of the ancient past, and with them build an altar, sense two pointing to sense one, laying upon it such invocation of meaning, sense four, as emerges from that work. The altar will, of course, as you see, be surrounded by a broad and ugly ditch full of water. It may look impossible for the sacrifice ever to catch fire. That's not our business. Our job, central to a true natural theology, is to build the altar, the public truth which emerges from responsible and careful historical work, displaying as best we can the meanings which make deep, rich, first century sense. Then and only then we pray for the fire to fall. And if that sounds like apocalyptic, well, that points us forward to the next lecture.